morning, good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be. On this rotating globe, welcome to another edition on this Sunday night, November 6th, of The Other Side of Midnight, live. That magical time between dusk and dawn where, well, we're entering that period where every major news anchor, every columnist, every reporter, anybody monitoring anything going on in the uh, real 3D world is saying we are living in extraordinary times. And this time of night is still the king of the extraordinary because we cover things here that only somewhat later kind of leak into the mainstream. And I'm kind of hoping that we're going to be at the forefront, or as Buzz Aldrin said on that memorable morning, number one on the runway again. Because we're talking tonight not only about this latest congressional report, which technically is not a congressional report. It was mandated under law by the Congress, signed by the president, but it's actually coming from the intelligence community, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. So it's the ODNI report delivered to us courtesy of a, a uh, congressional bill. Um, this version, this latest iteration is really interesting for what it's telling us and even more so for what it's not telling us. And again, as we did like a week ago when Stephen was here, we're going to talk a lot about the next iteration, which is the 2023 National Defense uh, uh, Act, which is uh, the one where all the internal information, all those people that know where all the metaphorical bodies are buried and all the secret projects involving UFOs and UFOs technologies, they are going to be released. It's kind of like that old uh, uh, expression, you know, release the Kraken. And that could all happen in the foreseeable future within days or at the most two or three weeks, certainly by the end of the year, because what we're waiting on is, well, I'll tell you what, let's, well, let's wait till we get Stephen on and we're going to have Barbara and Stephen on together tonight from the top of the show, uh, Georgia Lambert. Our resident metaphysician is going to join us in the third hour. But before we do any of that, let me give you a couple of news highlights. Um, again, uh, one week from tonight, literally one week from right now, plus maybe, what is it, uh, four minutes, the beginning of the official U.S. government return to the moon is supposed to theoretically begin with the launch of Artemis One, the big uh, moon rocket, the SLS, the Space Launch System, and its Orion spacecraft. What a name, Orion. I mean, come on, all these years, all this symbology, and then they named the whole damn spacecraft Orion. Um, and it's going to be launched on a 25-day uh, journey to the moon into a long looping orbit for, you know, a couple, three times, and then back to Earth to ring out all the systems in an unperson configuration. Uh, that's Artemis One. Artemis Two, which will be um, uh, next year, will have crew aboard. It will not land, it will go into lunar orbit and it will conduct basically the flight with extraordinary permutations and advancements over the ancient and venerable Apollo 10, which was the precursor mission to the first Apollo landing on the moon, which was Apollo 11 in July of 1969, July 20th. Anyway, Artemis II will have crew aboard, first woman, uh, first person of color perchance, um, Americans returning in physical form to the lunar environment for the first time in, well, you know, like almost 50 years, half a century. Did you ever think, did I ever think, that um, it would take so damn long? But it's that old expression from the Gallo wine commercial, make no wine before it's time. And I know there are people with an earshot, <clears throat> I can see Steve wrinkling his eyebrows, 
who do not believe this is all on some kind of a ritual timetable. And I am firmly, totally committed to the model because the model is predictive. And we predicted it over and over again that things cannot happen any old time. They happen when those that are in charge want them to happen. Remember FDR's classic statement made many, many decades ago in politics, there are no such things as coincidences. I mean, political decisions are decisions and they are enacted and carried out. And most people think, oh, that just kind of happened. No, if it happened politically, and of course the space program is intensely, overwhelmingly political, as well as technical, but primarily it was a political decision by Kennedy that set us on this journey on the new ocean, a metaphor that I really love. Um, so this all kind of gets underway literally a week now and 30 seconds from tonight, right now, if everything goes according to plan. Now, as you know, when you count down a big, big, big rocket that you have never flown before, which, of course, the uh, Artemis One SLS rocket has never flown. It's been test fired on the ground, but it has not flown. Uh, many a slip twixt the cup and the lip, as another cliche goes. So it could not maybe go off on time. There's a 90-minute launch window. It could be delayed. Uh, so what our plan is, is to obviously we'll be tracking this for hours ahead of the launch. So I will know when we come on the air, literally a week now and 30 seconds behind us, seven minutes, 30 seconds. Um... I'll know whether we're in the terminal count and it's proceeding normally or whether we're in a hold or whether we're going to go at all. So we'll know right at the top of the show uh, where where we are. And my plan is we're going to go live to the Cape. We'll go through the launch, through the various sequences, and I will uh, try to narrate what's going on and why it's going on, etc. And then we'll launch into a discussion as to why we should care I mean, that's kind of like the overview of tonight's program, which we're going to get to momentarily, because it's remember what Lincoln said with 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 people's acclamation and approbation. Anything is possible without the people's support. Nothing is possible. If we do this right, if we make clear what the real objectives of returning to the moon are, kind of in concert with the real objectives of the whole UFO, UAP investigation process, which we're going to spend a lot of time tonight discussing, then these two separate tracks can kind of meet at game's end because they are very intimately related, as uh, we will we will describe. And it's so interesting because I think, if I'm correct on this, that Stephen and I represent the two uh, longest-serving, most venerable members of these two overlapping communities. The UFO extraterrestrials are running around, and we need to open the doors and let everyone know what's going on group. And then me with the... there's incredible ancient ET artifacts surrounding us of which our history and humanity has been a part forever and ever and ever which they're not letting us know about group and those two groups have got to get together politically to create the forcing function on the body politic on the legislature on the administration on the media so we all kind of awaken to this much much larger reality, this extraordinary, almost indescribable new world when this goes down that we're all going to be thrust into whether we want to or not. So which camp would you like to be in? The camp that doesn't know what's going to happen. And one day you wake up and there it is on, you know, Fox and CNN and NBC. Or would you like to have forewarning and in part be be a, be a be a part of the process of making sure the story comes out correctly and that means that it's the truth as opposed to a carefully manufactured set of lies because of the end game the real winners of the war and we've been in in this war for all of my lifetime, 70 plus years, all of Stephen's lifetime, which is somewhat shorter, all of Barbara's lifetime. We won't discuss how long, but 
This is where it all matters. This is where, you know, the you-know-what hits the rotating kitchen appliance. Because the real objective of the war has been to keep us from ever knowing there's more than this little reality. And if they lost that one, the fallback position is to manufacture, to, to make us think that certain things are true when in fact they're not. And the future will depend on which vision of the truth, the real truth or the fake truth, we are then politically uh, encouraged, manipulated, uh, bludgeoned into following. So that's kind of the arc of the conversation tonight. Um, item number one is merely an update from NASA as to where they are with the Artemis One um, launch procedures. They rolled out the rocket and the spacecraft uh, a couple days ago. It's sitting on the pad. It'll sit there for the next week and uh, hopefully literally a week and five minutes from right now, it will be in the air in the air flying on a mission which will change if we have anything to say about it the future of humankind item number two um what was really interesting is that as we discussed last sunday night a week ago monday when you know business opened in washington there was supposed to be under law the release of this latest odni report uh, mandated by Congress and then to the general public. That's not exactly what happened. The uh, office of the director waited and waited and waited, and just kind of before midnight, they released a classified version to the committees, but nothing public. There's nothing, I don't think, and I'll check with Stephen momentarily, there's nothing public which has been uh, published or printed on either side of the Atlantic, because what was really weird is I began getting information from sources that the British press and the French press had published stories, but there was nothing, and I still have not found anything in the American press, in the Times, in the Post, in the LA Times, uh, USA Today, none of the networks, nobody is talking about the congressional quote UFO 2022 report except for overseas. So without further ado, let me introduce my guest. Stephen Bassett is a political activist, disclosure advocate, and executive director of the Paradigm Research Group, which was founded by Stephen in 1996 to end the government imposed embargo on the truth behind extraterrestrial related phenomena. And I'm hoping he means by that artifacts as well as creatures and beings and ships and technology and all that. Stephen has spoken to audiences around the world about the implications of disclosure, something he's going to expand upon tonight here. Um, disclosure being defined now, remember, as the formal confirmation by heads of state of an extraterrestrial presence currently engaging the human race. Uh, he's lectured around the world on the political implications of this phenomenon and has given over 1,200, good grief, radio and television interviews. Um, without further ado, Stephen Bassett, come on down. Hi, Richard. Howdy. You know, uh, the, the 20th century and 21st century from 1947 on to the present. I really wish I could live long enough so that much later in this century, uh, I don't know, maybe 2080 or something, I could I could watch historians have nervous breakdowns <laughs> trying to explain what in the hell happened here. What we were up right? to. What was going on? What were they thinking or not thinking? Okay, before yeah. we move on to where I, I want to introduce Barbara, because Barbara, um, actually both my guests tonight, my first two guests, are political. Barbara has served in the White House under the Reagan administration, uh, and I'll get to the details momentarily. Stephen, and one of the things we're going to talk about tonight is Stephen, as far as I know, is the only individual in the history of the United States who has run for Congress as a representative in the lower house 
of the two-house uh, parliament of the United States under the Constitution, who has run for Congress on the UFO platform. And was it once or twice? Uh, not run. A lot of people have run, but uh, I made the. I was on the ballot. I was the first person on the ballot. There have been a couple since, uh, along with the Democrat and the Republican and so forth. Plenty of people have run. You know, anybody can run. So it's just the first person, and I did it one time, and one was enough. Okay, okay. Let me go back to Barbara. So Barbara has served as a high-level government position in positions, including as a White House policy analyst, special assistant to the president for domestic policy, director of the Attorney General's Law Review at the Department of Justice, and for more than a decade was the senior military affairs journalist at the Naval Postgraduate School, which is the premier science, technology, and national security affairs graduate research university of the Department of Defense. And there's so much more. She's involved up to her eyebrows as co-chairman of the Board of Investigative Research at the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, et cetera, et cetera. You can read her whole bio as you can read Stevens on their bio page on the other side of midnight. Barbara, welcome. Welcome back. Well, welcome back to you, too. <laughs> I, I would like to add something, a couple of things to my bio that um, we probably should have mentioned in last Sunday's show. And that is um, when I was in the West Wing of the White House in the first two years of the good part of the first two years of the first Reagan administration. So from inauguration January 20th, 81 until late 80s. 83, actually, a little bit longer than that. Um, one of my portfolios was NASA and the space program. And we've never really had a show about what I did with that. Um, so um, some pretty historic things. So that's number one. And number two, I have run for Congress twice here in what's now, I believe, the 19th district of California, the Central Coast, Monterey Peninsula. Um, back then when I ran, Twice it was the 17th district, and with redistricting recently, it's now got a new number. Um, but I have run twice on, although not a UAP platform, I have run on a 9-11 truth platform. So, yes, we're uh, both Stephen and I are highly political. We both run for Congress, and um, we both are... Very, we're very, very close to Sarah McClendon, who was the senior White House correspondent. She was my political godmother when I was in Washington and after. And uh, we share, uh, as a very, very close longtime friend and colleague, the world-famous attorney Daniel Sheehan, who's a neighbor of mine. Hmm. Okay, so let me go back to Stephen. Um, I wanted to architect tonight so we talk about why we should care about any of this. There's been a lot of discussion in terms of these midterms about huge big picture items like democracy is at stake. That is not hyperbole. That's not overstatement. It really is. Uh, whether you vote for someone who you know believes in elections in the American system or you vote for somebody who doesn't, that will decide the future not only of this next two years, but who is actually elected president and confirmed, validated, certified as winning the election in 2024. So if you care about democracy, this is it. You got to vote for the right people, the wrong people, and you're stepping off the cliff into free fall where we have no idea where it's going, except it's going to go down. And the experiment, this extraordinary American experiment, I mean, it sounds so over the top to say it, but it literally could come to an end. Just think of Marjorie Taylor Greene as a committee chairman. Just to Not hold, just that. She's just, talking with Trump about being his running mate. Insane. It's just insane. insane. So, uh, all, right, all right. Now, that's, that's one of the huge mainstream big picture items. But people seem to be focused on much shorter term, immediate concerns, like what they're paying for eggs, what they're paying for a gallon of gas, you know, very bread and, bread, and, bread and butter, kitchen table issues, very short term, because inflation will come down. But if you make the wrong decision about who you elect, democracy could end and it can never come back, or it will come back long after you're dead and your children. And in other words, these are, these are historical, huge, sweeping decisions. In the same vein, 
why we should be interested in the disclosure of all that's gone on in the UFO field for the last 70 plus years and the practical benefits of opening that closet, of looking at those files, of releasing those technologies, of making them mainstream as fast as possible in terms of the fate of your pocketbook, the fate of your nation, the fate of humanity, which is confronting for the first time in uh, my recent lifetime, I mean, the last time was during the Cuban Missile Crisis, but now we're confronting a madman in the form of Putin, who was literally threatening the world with thermonuclear annihilation, because you can't use a quiet little tactical nuke and get away with it. All hell will break loose, and there's no predicting in terms of any game theory where it could wind up except in Armageddon. So we have not confronted that kind of existential threat since 1962. And now we're all facing it on this planet together, and we're on the eve, literally two days away, from the most critical election you can imagine, where if you select the wrong people, the people who do not, by their own words, believe in the American experiment, then our goose is cooked. In that milieu, the question, Stephen, to you is, when you ran for Congress, when you were on the ballot, and to me, running and being on the ballot is basically the same. You were saying there is an elegant little difference, but uh, okay. When you ran for Congress, how did you, to prospective voters, support and substantiate the idea that by voting for you and voting for this issue, their life would change for the better? <clears throat> My candidacy was a an activist maneuver. It, it wasn't about if you vote for me, your life will change for the better. Uh, because the chances of my winning were less than winning the Powerball lottery. <laughs> but the point of the candidacy was to be the first person on a uh, on a federal ballot openly discussing extraterrestrials. I avoided the term UFO at the plague. Um, and doing it in an intelligent way, being involved in the debates and also answering questions about the interstate you know, construction projects and other issues and gun control, meaning that people that are interested in the subject are actually fairly smart and can talk about a lot of things. And uh, I wouldn't have done it at all, except that the district I was living in, the 8th District of Maryland, it's not just any district. It is, it's the area of Bethesda, Chevy Chase. It is, sits right next to Washington, D.C. And uh, the, the, the Washington Post, all the papers cover, you know, it's like Washington, it's Washington metro area. And so all the papers go there. And so by running in that district, I was gonna get covered in the Washington Post and get an enormous amount of press. It simply wouldn't happen if I was running do for you, the same office in Iowa. Do you, uh, so it well, was a, yeah. Do you know whether the Goddard Space Flight Center is in that district? Montgomery County? I don't think so. I think it's in Prince George's. Yeah, we, we, we could, somebody could look that up. Yeah, Chief, look that can, up. can you look that up on Google? Which county is uh, the, the Goddard uh, Center uh, located in Maryland? So Prince George's County. So the answer to your question is, look, everything I've done, one way or another, is to try to raise the public's awareness of the reality of the ET presence, not think about it, meaning, oh, oh, what if there was an ET presence? No, that's not what I'm doing. There is an ET presence, right? The what if is like, what if there are unicorns? What if, you know... Uh, you could go on with what us all day long. No, no, no. It, it's it's bring, bring bring up the issue of the reality of ET presence. What the government has done to prevent them from knowing that, and what needs to happen so they will know it. And in certain instances, when I'm asked, what is the reason why they need to know it and the implications? 
then I answered that. But that takes usually between two and four and a half hours. Well, good. We got three tonight. So let's yeah, get no, so no. Why should we give a damn? Why, Stephen, have you and I, and to a lesser extent, Barbara, devoted our political lives to trying to get people to appreciate we live in a much huger reality than is imagined by almost anybody and that reality has not only shaped our past it is shaping even if we're not aware of it our future and our decisions our control over that future is dependent on us knowing this information and then making the appropriate political decisions well have you not answered the question then? i mean you've answered your own question i mean that's one way to put it uh, I'm trying to say that why we should care about this is one of those kinds of questions where attempting to answer it with a few clever sentences is simply not only not possible, but generally is kind of embarrassing. I, the, the best that I can do in this situation is to give a couple of key points that are relevant to it. But the number of reasons why this embargo should have not been started and should have been ended long ago is in the thousands, okay? But let me try to boil it down to a couple, but I don't want people to think, oh, so that's the reason. No, it's just a couple of things. One reason, the main, the decision to execute this truth embargo uh, and again, not create a secret, right? You know, uh, having a, a, a super secret plane that you're building, right, in a super secret place and not telling anybody about it uh, is not an embargo, it's a, it's a secret, right? Uh, the reason it's an embargo and not a secret is the thing that they are, quote, trying to prevent us from knowing about is flying all over the place. Right? It would be like if you live near a, an Air Force base and the stealth bombers were flying over your house like two or three times a day and the government was constantly telling you, what stealth bombers? I, what are you talking about? What? No stealth bombers. So th this was a particularly difficult problem for them. The government was looking at a situation where they've got non-human entities with unbelievable capabilities to travel, flying everywhere they want to be, landing if they want to, going into the water. Uh, probably having bases, and they don't want the people to, to, to know that. They don't want people to think about it, care about it. And I, I'm amazed somebody didn't raise their hand and say, are you out of your minds, <laughs> right? Are you kidding us, right? But it was an unusual time. And by the time the Robertson panel was convened in late 1952, after the huge flybys over the Capitol in July of 52, they had the best opportunity right there to do the right thing right then. Meaning, look, the press was all up in arms and people were scared. They had to bring a general out to give, what was it, Sanford, whatever the hell his name was, to give a press conference where he sort of admitted something's going on here. And it was all just wild and crazy. At that moment, if they had said, okay, let's, let's, let's go forward. Let's set up uh, all the stuff that they're doing now do it then in 52. Set up a program, the DOD, pass some legislation, get some witnesses, old parents, uh, whatever. Think, what, we're at the bottom of the hour. We've got three hours here, so let's, uh, let's not rush this. My guest this morning for the first two hours, and we'll be adding uh, George Lambert, our resident metaphysician, and the third is Stephen Bassett, who's been on the trail of breaking through the government cover and screens and lies and deception about UAPs, UFOs, and all the concomitant extraterrestrial realities that you can imagine for many decades. And Barbara Honiger is with us, who among her uh, duties in the Reagan White House was overseeing, in terms of policy, the actual day-to-day -day activities of the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. And of course, those people, they know where the bodies are buried, at least some of them, because you can see their ruins from a quarter million miles away on the surface of the moon. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Be confident choosing farmers insurance. And we are back. My uh, guest this morning, Stephen Bassett and Barbara Honiger, and we're talking about why we should care if, in fact, we are being visited, have been visited in the past by extraterrestrial species. Now, that's a very important item to describe because when we talk about UFOs, most people realize that we're talking about objects, machines, vehicles, whatever, that are man, person, whatever, by people, by entities, by conscious beings. And it's the beings that we're really uh, kind of uh, describing and are concerned with. So when you got these questions as you were campaigning, how did you answer the question, why should we care? And I'd like to answer that later. Okay, exactly. I'm, I'm going to go to you next. Okay. Go, go ahead, Stephen. Well, again, I was never asked that question. And if I had... Never? Been, no, no. I wasn't asked that question. I was asked some questions, God bless them. But again, I'm on a campaign debate with two very significant politicians, uh, one of whom is now a senator, <laughs> you know, Van Hollen. He, that, that was his first seat. He won that. And he, now he's a major player. And, you know, and then Connie Morella was an eight-time Republican. Whatever. The point is that... I'm trying to answer the question by by simply raising one reason, one reason why it's important. That's all. Okay, uh, you want 500 more? Fine, we'll get into it sometime next week. We'll finish. But the one reason that I was trying to point out was this: they made a fateful decision in July, January, early 1953. At that point, they could have done everything that they're doing now: put some legislation in play called for the Department of Defense to start put it, setting up structure to address this issue as opposed to uh, you know, eventually putting up a, doing another study called Blue Book in this case, which is all BS. They could have done it right. They could have done, gone about it the right way and in short order probably confirmed the ET presence in the mid-1950s latest. But they chose not to. They made a fateful decision for national security reasons. Okay, stop there. Stop there. And, uh, hang on, hang on, hang on. Do you think it was simply stupidity or was there an agenda? Did they not, let me finish the question, please. Did they not follow through because they knew the answer and the answer was so negative in terms of continued conventional power relationships, and that's what politics are, power relationships, that they chose to deliberately ignore the reality of the phenomenon because the answers would mean they, meaning in power, would lose. No. Okay. As of 1952, they didn't know all that much. I mean, they tracked plenty of craft. They had at least one vehicle, possibly a couple. They had some dead bodies. But they didn't know that much. They knew they were here. Uh, and, And so the decision was basically pure national security. Uh, okay, so you're in the was, camp. It was, so again, I, so hang on, Stephen. Let's do this carefully, methodically. We've well, never, we've never grappled with this ultimate question: Why have we committed our lives to this, you and me, separately? Well, I'm, I'm trying to give you one reason, Dick. I'm trying to let me finish the reason, and then if you want to go to another, one, we'll go to another reason. They made a national security decision, which was primarily attached to the fact that by ninety, early ninety-three. 
the outlines of what was to come in terms of geopolitical affairs was fairly clear. A fully nuclear weaponized Soviet Union, an eventual probably weaponized communist China, a uh, uh, so a n- nuclear forces. Well, wait, you said 93. Light- I think you mean 53. 53, 53. Yeah. They, they, they knew the outlines are coming. They, they knew that we were, we were at risk of having another war. It could be a nuclear war. There was going to be a weapons race and so forth. And so the world was a very dangerous place. But wait a also minute. When, Korean- when, hang on, hang on, hang on. When, when Reagan and Gorbachev had their conversation, it revolved around we need to end what we're doing and become some kind of detente relationship because there's a big unknown out there. And we need to combine our forces to confront the unknown. No. Why did that, that why did that conversation not happen in fifty three as no. opposed to in eighty seven, well, I think, as well. Well when the conversation had they knew what they was an unknown, they knew exactly what the hell was out there. Right? Again, that's diplomacy. That's negotiations. Okay? That's what you hear. Right, the Soviets have known about the ET presence all the way back to Roswell. They knew about Roswell probably within five months of the damn thing happening. This, this is what people don't get. For the last seventy-five years, people within all the major governments—not everybody, but those who are in a need to know—have known about the ET presence, have known about the technology, have known a, a great deal of that, and it has been embargoed from us. They will not admit it. They'll lie about it. They classify it to the max. They do whatever they can to keep it under wraps. All of the major nations have done this, led by the United States. Okay? Now, to get back to the point, though, that decision in 53 was faithful. I I can understand why going to the public and saying, look, and, and in fact, the, 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 they've got German scientists, the Soviets have got missiles they're building. We're probably going to have to be dealing with the threat of nuclear annihilation. And by the way, ETs are here. And we don't really know yet what the hell is going on with them. They made the decision, no, we're going to embargo this. We're going to keep this under wraps. We're going to use all our special skills to keep this from being an issue. All right? Deny it, subvert it, undermine it, whatever the hell. Control the press if we can and so forth and they did all of that and they succeeded and this is the problem this was the downside of that decision by creating what ended up being 70 more years of lying misrepresentation obfuscation while the phenomena continued to grow in other words each year that goes by where they're trying to tell us there's no no they're there the there gets bigger and bigger. And so this gap, this huge gap between the government's position and reality grows and grows. And that that gap, that truth vacuuming vacuum that was created back then for national security reasons has been a contributing factor to the fundamental decline of trust in the democratic government of the United States by its own people. Lying about Vietnam a couple of times, that was bad. Lying about Iraq was bad. But lying every day of every week of every month for 70 years about something that's flying overhead and then pe- going into people's rooms and taking them out their windows for annual uh, monthly inspections, all of that becomes such a grotesque disconnect from government as your servant and truth teller that it is significantly undermined trust. It is not the only thing, but when you add up all the, the, the things that have undermined trust in government, which is now an unbelievable load, you have the situation you have today. It is a contributing factor to the cataclysmic political situation we're in right now. So that is one of hundreds of reasons why the ending the truth embargo, understanding the truth embargo, and never repeating the truth embargo is important and that's a short answer but i like it it was all right all right let me let me turn to barbara barbara why should we care well there are a number of reasons um i'd like to make a slight correction to something you said about me a little bit earlier and that is um you said that maybe me a little bit less than than you and Stephen, have been Uh, spending decades of our lives trying to get the truth out about um, phenomenon that are related to this subject. Yes, I have. 
Um, I earned the first ever uh, fully Western Associated Western Association of Schools and Colleges WASC fully accredited graduate degree in consciousness studies and experimental parapsychology in the entire planet. Um, and that was um, that was my field of expertise uh, when I was lifted up by a phenomenal synchronicity and dropped in the West Wing of the White House in the Reagan administration. Um, so I, I just want to point out that I want to make a couple of comments over what's already been said here, just to set the record straight besides that. And that is, um, number one, um, I consider the reason that we should care about this the most, there, I agree with Stephen, there are multiple, multiple reasons. But the one that comes up first in my mind when you ask the question is, is something that you say almost every program. Richard. And it's true. And that is that the answer to this question, the reality behind it, the reality behind paranormal phenomenon, um, the reality behind UAPs, the reality behind the important abductions, of course the military is doing their own to try to muddy the waters, um, the especially the biological experimentation, the DNA experimentation on the abductees by whoever is abducting them or whatever is abducting them. This is about who we are. It is about what human beings on this planet are, what we are. Doesn't matter if we were from the Soviet Union or from Germany or from Africa or from the United States. It doesn't matter. It is what is the human race? Because I'm not aware of abductions, although there could be, of, uh, you know, vesicularis monkeys and orangutans. <laughs> uh, seriously. Okay. Um, so, I think that it's really about who we are. Now, if you were to ask me for what I believe is a kind of reigning hypothesis in my mind that tends to make sense of a lot, that is, we have met the ETs and they are us. They are us in the future. And they have found a way to come back into the past. And that's the reason that they are preventing us from annihilating ourselves because they would pop out of existence in the future where they are. Um, so uh, that's, that's my first answer. Um, the second thing I want to point out is that I find it very, very fascinating. You, you opened the show uh, close to the beginning of opening the show by pointing out that to our knowledge and you and I have looked we have googled and googled and googled um, we have only found three articles on the classified version of the first annual report to Congress that was released uh, you know just minutes before the deadline late night on Halloween um, and that is in uh, two of the UK papers, The Sun and especially The Daily Mail. Um, the Sun is more of a, of a kind of a it's newspaper a, rag. It's a, um, it's a tabloid, okay. It's a tabloid, but The Daily Mail is a real paper. Yep. And The Daily Mail article, by the way, have you put these three articles up in your items? Because if you won't, I'll send them. I put, I put the Daily Mail piece because I have a kind of a warm spot in my heart. The Daily Mail flew all the chief science reporter for the Daily Mail flew all the way to Flagstaff, Arizona, to interview me in the Lowell Observatory uh, mm -hmm. in 2003 for a major piece and then a book that he was doing. And, and it was a very long, very interesting conversation. So, yeah, I kind of have a warm spot for the Daily Mail. And it was the most thorough uh, reveal. And it had the most interesting uh, tagline in the summary, which was, and I'll read it, um, an inside source who leaked them the story about the classified report said, quote, they don't want to talk about the unexplainable stuff because they really, really, this is the Pentagon now, this is the ODNI report, they really, really don't know what the hell they are, meaning the sure. objects, and that's the truth, the source said. And I think right. that's a huge part of, basically they're still covering their delicate posteriors. Yeah, so it, it's, it's very possible they don't know. 
I mean, I know that Stephen says they know everything. I'm not certain that's true. They know a lot. But I don't think that they really know the big picture of this. I don't think anybody does yet. Um, and I'd like to point out in the Daily Mail article, they, they refer to it as an exclusive. Now, somehow the sun got a hold of it probably after the Daily Mail published if it really wasn't exclusive. But it's labeled in all caps exclusive um, from the Daily Mail. And I'm going to read a, a sentence. Um, first, I find it very fascinating that someone leaked only to a British paper and not a U U.S. paper. Of course, the U.S. papers might have been leaked by this uh, secret source as well and decided not to publish. But but the only one that we know that uh, that published that was the original leak with the exclusive is the Daily Mail. So here's a sentence from the Daily Mail article from this um, from this leak, presumably from the new uh, threat identification program. Okay. Um, no, actually, the successor of the, the new task force. So it says, quote, the hall, meaning the document's response, um, includes... Um, this is from a Freedom of Information Act request that came out um, to uh, ATIP. The hall, the document's response, includes reports into research on the biological effects of UFO sightings on humans and, I underline this, sets out categorizations under the phenomenon for paranormal experiences. Now, mm. this, is very, this is very important. Um, because that's that's my expertise, and it's also, as I understand it, Georgia Lambert's expertise partially. And 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 it's mine because that's nothing but hyperdimensional physics straight through. Right. Right, exactly. Okay. So I've been interested all of my life because of my own paranormal experiences. That's the reason I got the first accredited graduate degree in the world. Well, wasn't, the, wasn't this a JFK university up there near yes. Berkeley? Okay. okay. John F. Kennedy University in Orinda, California. Yes, I was I was the first graduate, and in June 1981, I walked across the stage with none other than Manley Hall. <laughs> uh, Manley Hall was receiving the first uh, Master of Science, accredited Master of Science degree, uh, in, in consciousness studies, um, uh, the first honorary degree, and I received the first earned degree. And we sat next, next to each other on the stage to get our degrees. But anyway, I just want to point out the paranormal aspect to this. I also, I also think it's incredibly important to realize that, um, and, and I know that to my pleasant surprise, and I didn't know this, I don't know why I didn't know it, but on a previous program, not last Sunday, but the one that Stephen and I and you were on previously, some months ago, um, I learned from something Stephen said that he got into this, if I recall correctly, because of the abduction phenomenon, which I consider to be paramount. Um, I consider the whole tech uh, aspect to be secondary to the abduction phenomenon. and. Because we know that the abduction phenomenon is absolutely about tinkering with the human DNA and possibly producing human other hybrids, um, why would you want to do that? You would want to do that to try to produce human hybrids that were adapted to other planets. So this is, I believe this is an interplanetary biological experimentation. They have perhaps come back from the future and they have to help us survive so that they can survive. Well, this gets into all kinds of really interesting existential questions like, is there only one timeline? I don't think there is. I think there's no, branching there timelines, yeah. which means our future is not preordained by whatever happens in our present because it will branch. So Oh yeah, that's that's what miracles are about. I don't I don't I don't see their their intervention, whoever they are, and there's more than one they. I think that in the public domain there's so little real solid scientifically verifiable information 
and a huge cornucopia of speculation and trash and disinformation and blind canyons and deliberate lies and all that to keep us from knowing the truths and there's more than one that that's why having an established official investigation is crucial to kind of centralize a process where we all can go to the same sources the same data and learn almost like in real time the process of figuring this out which should have happened and i agree Stephen, it should have happened 70 plus years ago it could start in the next couple three weeks let me remind you of one other thing and then you can go back you know to another question or whatever and that is um i was in the uh, roosevelt room of the west wing of the white house in late february probably more into march of 1981 when uh, president reagan uh held a special meeting with all of his cabinet secretaries and that included the CI, new CIA director William Casey, who had been his his cap, his um, campaign manager in the 1980 election, under which Casey and Bush Sr. stole the election from Carter in the October surprise, which is the subject of my book by that title. And so, in that meeting, I was because I was the uh, the uh, top assistant, the top aide uh, to this to the chief domestic policy advisor to Reagan, who was uh, convening the meeting for Reagan. Um, they went around the table and the purpose of the meeting was for all of the cabinet secretaries and the CIA director, who, who then was not a cabinet secretary, but he was in the meeting, to um, after a few weeks in their respective agencies and departments to let Reagan know what they found out really goes on in the government, in their agencies and departments. And it was fascinating, I was the note taker and they went around the room, and when they got to William Casey, um, I'm just going to give you the famous quote that I am the source for. I immediately told Sarah McClendon, who published it without naming me as the source, so that I could continue giving her information <laughs> from the inside of the future. Of course. Um, but, but William Casey said to Reagan, he said, Mr. President, our, meaning the CIA's and the government's, our disinformation program will finally be successful when everything, everything the American public believes is false. Now, this applies oh not God. only to 9-11, it applies to this. This is not unique. This embargo or secrecy is not unique. It is a conscious policy. Did we lose Barbara? No, no, I'm here. Oh, there you are, okay. I'm here. A conscious policy covering all of government, you're saying? Covering all of government. Well, but that's been history. And then the counterforce is you have forces that are determined to break through and to provide people with the truth, very well, yes, versions that's, that's of the correct. truth. So that is correct, so that but I don't... I don't hold great faith in a, this congressional process. I mean, I hope something happens. Um, I would just like to go on record that I told you so, you know, a, a week ago or so. I said, well, they're going to release the classified report just, you know, before the deadline, but they're not going to release the, the public report. And you said, oh, yes, they will. This is so important. I said, no, they won't. <laughs> so I was right about that. Um, I, don't, I don't put – I don't think people – should put too much expectation on this congressional process uh, producing anything of real significant value. Um, because I know from personal experience with the October Surprise Task Force, my book um, was published on May 12th of 1989, and then there were three others by Inside the Beltway people um, two to three years after mine. And when those came out, uh, there was a, uh, the Democrats were in control of the House of Representatives, and they realized the political um, advantage to holding an October Surprise Task Force investigation. And so they voted it, um, they voted it in, and it was funded higher than the 9-11 Commission, and I, my book started that process, my whistleblowing book. And when the congressional investigation actually happened, it was called the October Surprise House of Representatives Task Force, they put um, Lee Hamilton in charge of it. 
he was head of the House uh, Foreign Affairs Committee, and uh, I guess it was Foreign Affairs, yeah, House Foreign Affairs Committee, not Foreign Relations. That's the Senate, and um, of course they he he did a bloody cover up. I mean, it was it was a complete whitewash, uh, and then that's why because he proven his bona fides as being the perfect fixer for any truth they don't want out. Um, then uh, they put him as the co-chairman of the 9-11 Commission, which was a bloody cover-up and a whitewash. So I don't expect much from this process. I hope I'm wrong. Um, but that's why I find it very interesting that um, even this source from the inside, the people on the inside of this new task force, um, under the um, the deputy head of intelligence for the Pentagon, um, they are upset even on the inside of it that uh, the first report, the, even the classified report, uh, does not go into uh, they claim uh, what they what they don't think they can begin to explain because those are the ones that matter. Yeah, of course. Okay, Stephen, we got about four minutes to the top of the hour. Start the rebuttal as to why you and I think the next one, the 2023 NDAA, is really going to break the dam open because I have my thoughts and you have yours, and then we'll continue it on the other side. And I hope you're right. The dam has been leaking water for quite a while. Um, what will ultimately break the dam will be the hearings. This see, see, hang on, hang on, hang on. See, that's where you and I totally disagree, and I'm with Barbara, but I want you to make your case, and then on the other side, I'll, I'll, I'll make mine. Go ahead. Well, it's not a case to make. I'm just telling you. The hearing is what's going to break the dam. Uh, as far as the, uh, uh, the legislation, this legislation, which is still not that known, it's not getting that much press. Uh, very little, actually. Uh, some podcast activity, of course. But who can follow 2,000 podcasts? <laughs> but it, it will get more attention when it's passed. When he signs it in November, this bill is going to get more attention. Of course, I'm going to do everything I can to ensure that because the language in this bill is highly significant in ways the previous two bills were not. And it sends a very clear message that they are serious about moving this along and getting the job done. And all I can say is, is that the American people think the job is one thing, but it's in fact something else. But as long as the job gets done, it doesn't really matter. If the millennials and those that know nothing about this issue think that, my God, the government finally learned that there was something going on and they're doing the right thing and we get to hearings and disclosure, fine. The fact that that's not true. And a lot of other people that know better know that, no, no, the job is they've got to somehow get out from under the truth embargo, set up this infrastructure and have it happen so that the public relations wise, it's as good as possible because they know, regardless of how well they pursue this, when disclosure takes place, the government is going to have to deal with a raft of, how would you say, caca, and it's not going to be fun, but it'll be a lot better then if this thing suddenly blew out on its own or another nation were to announce it. Um, so uh, that's it. The, getting the job done is getting to disclosure and uh, the hearings is what's going to break that open. This legislation is a major step in that and I gave you the reasons for that. It's freeing up the witnesses. It's actually providing them protection. It's, 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 it's going to create a library of, they're going to review all the NDAs, decided to, to find out who's being inappropriately suppressed from speaking. God knows how many people that is. There could be 10,000 Dietrichs and Favors out there. So that's how I see it. Bill. Okay, hold on. We're at the top of the hour. My guest this morning for the first two hours with the other side of midnight on this Sunday November 6, 2022, is Stephen Bassett, who is probably the chief and longest-serving activist in the field of UFO disclosure that exists on planet Earth, and Barbara Honiger, who was a uh, policy analyst in the Reagan White House, did a lot of things regarding NASA policy in those years that we really kind of haven't talked about, and very fortuitously, has a degree in an area we're going to get into later in the program, which is, um, well, how does the paranormal hyperdimensional realm 
enter into all this. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Mm-hmm.